Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Terrorism and Organized Crime. And today we are having another session where we're having a repeat uh, author. So we have John Dickey again. We're talking today about his new book, uh, Mafia Republic, Cosa Nostra, Ingrangheta, Camorra, 1946 to the Present, which is a follow-on from your earlier book, uh, tracing the history of these three groups from their original uh, formation through to World War II. How are you, John? I'm not too bad, thanks very much. That's good. Thanks. Yeah, this, this this book is a sequel. Uh, this sort of, uh, I think, wildly ambitious, somebody called it, <laughs> uh, attempt to trace a complete, a, a kind of complete, create a complete narrative of these three organisations. The point being, I think, there's an awful lot to learn uh, from letting those histories sort of run in parallel and see what they've got in common, see what the differences are. Um, Particularly in Italy, the world of um, history generally and history of organized crime in particular is very, uh, you know, it's pretty parochial, I I would say. I don't think it's unfair to say that of my Italian colleagues in the sense that Sicilians tend to work on the Sicilian Mafia, Calabrians work on the Andrangheta, and people from Naples and Campania work on the Camorra. And while there's a lot of comparative sociological work going on um, between the different organizations and, and internationally, there simply isn't a systematic uh, narrative history that brings the three of them together. Uh, and I, I like to think there's a lot to learn by doing that. Yeah. And, well, very importantly for readers in English, you're probably the preeminent person who is reading the original material in Italian and then writing in English. So we're not relying on on translations or anything, which usually don't appear. They're very rare uh, translations from all that Italian work that you're discussing. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's an unfortunate thing. I mean, I myself in the past have tried to get publishers to publish translations of important uh, Italian works on organized crime, but it's very, very difficult. I think... um, you know, I think Italian academics don't write particularly well. Again, I'm probably giving an unfair generalisation here, but, um, you know, they write very much... Uh, the, the academic culture there is that you write for your peers uh, and that they don't quite have the same sort of British or at least Anglophone tradition of writing for a broader public um, in historical terms. And translation is a big cost, you know. It's a big upfront cost which makes, that you know... Often can often make uh, an academic book unfeasible for uh, for publishers, unfortunately. Yeah, well, um, so yes, you know, I, I hope I'm providing a useful service in that sense. Yeah, no, well, uh, I think you definitely are because the interpretations you provide on each of these groups uh, provides a lot more detail than we're getting from other sources. That's for sure. And I think anyone who's read the first book will have a version of the history of these organisations that's only ever been touched on in part in other books. And let's face it, most of the other books really are about the American mafia rather than what's actually happening in Italy. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think people... I mean, there are various reasons for that. Obviously, the, you know, the prominence of the American mafia uh, culturally um, is important. Um, a lot of the people working in the States simply don't have linguistic access to the original material. And the American mafia has also been used to support an awful lot of, uh, you know, both academically and culturally, an awful lot of narratives about modernization about the dark side of capitalism about the uh, the transformation of you know something backward and peasant like and traditional into something kind of modern and more industrial and so on the real history of the mafia simply doesn't support those narratives at all mm. um but then of course you really have to get the um, Italian side of the story to, to perceive that properly. Yes, yes. I mean, I've seen a lot of work done, uh, not very much published, but certainly discussions at criminology conferences where people are using Foucauldian and, and Marxist interpretations. And I think what your books show is this is something all uh, quite unique to the, to the regions themselves. It, it doesn't rely on any of these interpretive mechanisms or methodologies, uh, the, the history itself explains itself, if you like. It's not mm. something that fits into the broader criminological narratives or sociological narratives. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, you just have to be guided by the sources. You know, that, that, that it, it may sound uh, banal, but that was the real breakthrough in the, uh, in the 1980s, mid-1980s, late 1980s in Italy that led to the foundation of this new school of... Uh, historiography on organized crime was simply just to go in there and look at the conventional sources. Obviously, you know, primarily, of course, court and trial documents. Now, they don't, you know, no historical resource directly reveals the truth about what it's talking about. They're always mediated. You always have to be careful interpreting them. But it's amazing how frequently they were simply dismissed out of hand as you know, inventing the mafia, these sort of fantasies of power to invent these criminal organizations out of nothing for some sin sinister purpose. Uh, and actually, once you get into the nitty gritty of the sources, uh, that is revealed as a, you know, profoundly simplistic uh, account. And I think there's a lot of politics involved in this. I mean, in, uh, we were talking in the pre-interview about um, the battle that's going on here between our state government and the outlaw motorcycle gangs. It's been an ongoing Australian issue for the best part of a decade. And there are political uh, vested interests in which party succeeds in bringing in successful legislation and the narrative gets pushed along by those things. So denial of harm in the community isn't driven by any factual uh, information, but much more by a, a political argument that's all about winning government and nothing about uh, responding to what's actually happening in the community. Mm, I think there's mm. a lot of that in your story as well. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the mafia, the word mafia, is like Camorra, is born amid contro political controversy, you know, back in the 19th century. Right from the beginning, it's a stick to beat other people with. It's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's an insult, whether about uh, criminals or about your opponent, political opponents or whatever it might be. And that air of con controversy about it, the, the sort of conceptual inflation that surrounds the term, 
uh, still persists today. You know, the, 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 you, you endlessly hear people talking, ah, but the real mafia uh, is this, and um, the, uh, you, you know, you're just looking at the gangsters when actually the real focus of illegal power and so on. You know, I'm not, my book doesn't deny for a minute that there are other um, problems in Italian society and other uh, areas of corruption and, and concentrations of illegal power. But let's at least take the mafia for what it is and not mm. keep trying to use it. The mafia is what they are, rather. Not keep trying to use them as metaphors for something else or dismissing them as, as, as pretexts for, you know, or as shields for, for some other form of power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, on that point, let's actually move into the histories. Um, well, do you want to start with the Sicilian Mafia and give us an update on what has actually happened with that group from World War Two till today? And um, we may as well start with uh, the, the invasion of Sicily itself and what occurred yeah. then. Yeah. Well, the, the, the book begins with what I call this kind of wave of forgetting that sets in in the immediate post-war period. Um, uh, one of the astonishing things, one of the things that makes writing the history of organized crime in Italy so fascinating is that you realize just how much the Italian authorities knew and then forgot. You know, the, the, the key data was in organized crime, particularly in the case of Sicilian Mafia, but generally in Italy, is 1992, when the Supreme Court finally issued a verdict that recognized the existence of the Sicilian Mafia as an organization, as, as, as what it is, a kind of quasi-Masonic uh, network-come-structured organization uh, of criminals. Now, um, the, what we know is that the fascist authorities in the late 1930s had discovered exactly the same thing. They had an, a, a series of major investigations in the mid-1930s discovered an identical structure to the Sicilian Mafia, very, very well documented. The documentation on this is thousands of pages. Um, identical structure to what that supreme verdict would later confirm in 1992. The problem is that they did it behind closed doors. They, they banned all mention of the media um, in the 1930s because Mussolini had already boasted that he'd beaten the mafia in the late 1920s when, of course, he'd done nothing, nothing of the sort. And I begin, I illustrate this strange process of forgetting by talking about the story of one particular magistrate, one particular judge, a man called Giuseppe Guido Lo Schiavo, who'd in, been involved in the fascist operations against the Sicilian Mafia, and who'd gone public, who'd written uh, public interventions, which are uh, extraordinarily rich and very incisive historical and sociological descriptions of what the Sicilian Mafia is. And he describes it in terms that are absolutely identical that a historian like me or sociologist might use to describe it. And this is back in the 1930s. But then in, and he takes considerable personal risks to do that. It's a very courageous thing to do that. But then something very strange happens. After the Second World War, after the Allied invasion and the liberation, he 
starts to write novels. And the novels he writes portray the mafia in a very, very different way. He starts to describe it as a force of a sort of traditional conservative force in the countryside. He starts to, to, to describe it as a, um, a kind of auxiliary police force. Um, he says that, you know, really Italy just has, Italy just has to recognise the good that there is in the mafia. Um, and that um, if we can um, come to terms with them, strike a deal with them, recognise that Sicily is an island, a particular place with its own particular history, its own particular mentality, and it needs the mafia to govern it. He's suggesting a kind of partnership, effectively, between the police and the mafia. And this is, he, he novelises this very strangely. Well, in the meantime, his legal career is doing very well. He, he's on the Supreme Court. He's an extremely important judge. Basically, in other words, he's become, that is the, um, the mafia's official line that he is now touting. He's gone through a 180-degree reversal of his position from describing the Mafia as an inherently criminal organisation um, to be prosecuted in the following ways as an association. His history, with its history in the political violence of Italian unification, exactly as we describe it now, to this flannel, to this apologetic flannel in his novels and in the most famous Italian mafia movie of the era that is based on one of his novels. Now, why is that? Why is that? You know, it's obviously extremely worrying that if a judge on the Supreme Court and the man who is teaching law to uh, the Carabinieri, he's the, he's the tutor of law for the you know, Italian police, is saying effectively the mafia doesn't exist. It's a kind of mentality. We've got to come to terms with it. You know, it can't, you know, it's too diffuse a thing to actually prosecute. The reason effectively is a political one. The reason is a political calculation that the mafia is better than the communists. We're in the middle, the Cold War has begun. The communists have styled themselves, as they have done in the past, as a bulwark uh, against peasant and other left-wing militancy. They have carried out a ruthless program of assassinations against union leaders and, so, uh, and, uh, uh, and um, communist and socialist militants in the Sicilian countryside. And ultimately, a conservative like Giuseppe Guido Roschiavo decides to effectively recant, to, 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 to lie. And it's a remarkable insight, I think, into the way that the Italian state essentially adopted an official line during the whole of the Cold War, virtually the whole of the Cold War. The Mafia didn't exist. Um, is that why 1992 is such an important date? Because it's a post yeah. yeah, Absolutely. They, I mean, you know, a lot of people are astonished when they say, hang on, you know, everybody knows the Mafia's been around for ages. How on earth did it take Italy until 1992 to recognise that it existed. I think that story encapsulates why, you know. And there are good reasons that I go into to suspect this particular judge of collusion with the Mafia as well. Um, 
in, in, in various specific instances. So that whole massive body of knowledge that had been accumulated by the authorities under fascism, well, we've seen the documents and circulars were sent round to all the ministries and so on, was quietly forgotten in the name of a pact, effectively, a, a, a pact to share territory, to share sovereignty with the Sicilian mafia. Um, and the, in the case of the other organisations, there were similar forms of forgetting. In the case of the Andrangheta, we know now that again in the 1930s, again in secret, so it, it, can't, it wasn't a propaganda operation to say that this mafia existed. It was all done in secret. They didn't tell anybody. They also discovered uh, a coordinating body of the Andrangheta called the, the Gran Criminal, which, which has an internet, internet, incident we know now, has an international purview over the Andrangheta's constitutional affairs. Um, they discovered this in the 1930s and then forgot about it again in the immediate post-war period. And it took until 2009, in fact 2010 before it came public, for prosecutors to reconstruct a convincing case for the existence of this coordinating body, which historical evidence strongly suggested, uh, you know, existed throughout the post-war period. In the case of the Camorra, we have a different, uh, different story. The Camorra today is not um, what you might call an honoured society, to use the language of the 19th and early, uh, early 20th century used to describe these organisations. It's not a sworn criminal brotherhood. The Camorra, as had once upon a time been such a brotherhood, a, a kind of honoured society, but it had effectively been broken up and destroyed and we'd been left with a much more messier panorama of organised crime in the city of Naples and in Campania. But there was, in the immediate post-war period, an enormous political reluctance to use the term Camorra to talk about organised crime, when many of the same symptoms, bosses who would mediate between the political system and the underworld organized criminal gangs with a strong element of consensus amongst the local population. These definitely existed, but in the public domain, there was a, a, a kind of refusal to use the word Camorra. It seemed to be, unless it belonged to this rather quaint past that was deemed to have disappeared. And the reasons for that, again, once again, are political. Naples was a, a very conservative city politically, a monarchist City, even though the monarchy had abolished, been abolished in in the city, a monarchy, a very conservative monarchist party, held power for quite a while after the Second World War, and they had a kind of political line that was Naples, the victim, Naples put upon by the North. It was a sort of whining local patriotism that that, that was their line, um, and so they refused to countenance any that they regarded any. Uh, and this was a line you often heard from Sicilian politicians too. Any talk about organised crime, oh, that's just Northerners who are being, you know, prejudiced uh, towards us. So there was a sort of, effectively, a conspiracy of uh, silence about organised crime was established very, very quickly. Um, 
on the left too there was there were difficulties to organize conceptual difficulties apart from anything else there was a marxist model dominant among, among the left that saw uh, the mafias as auxiliaries of the or- ruling class, and the ruling class was the real problem. So, you know, uh, we didn't really need to understand the mafias as such. And the, the, the great problem was poverty. Poverty was the big problem in southern Italy. If the mafia existed, it was a byproduct of poverty. The issue was to deal with poverty. Um, which again proved to be a distraction. Um, uh, you know, the problems of poverty were very real, but the chain of cause and effect between the, that poverty and the existence of the mafias was very, very attenuated. Mm. And these groups, having existed effectively for about a century each, by the time you start this book, you know, probably a bit less, grow and they, they internationalise over this more recent period. So how does that take place? Yeah, that's one of the very distinctive features of the post-war period. Not so much the internationalization of these organizations, because we know the Sicilian mafia had a presence, strong presence in um, uh, New Orleans and New York, particularly in the late uh, 19th century. Um, in the case of Australia, we know the Andrangheta was there in the 1930s at the very latest. Um, uh, again, you know, all, all the traces of the organisation are there. Um, so it's less the internationalisation that's a novelty of the post-war period, although it does gather pace. It's more the spread to other Italian regions, interestingly enough. It's only in the post-war period with the great migration of southern Italians to the north, um, you know, the freeing up of movement after fascism and the, uh, you know, the pent-up hunger for labour in, in northern industry, that um, it, that's when we begin to see colonies of uh, mafiosi in the north. Uh, and more generally, the mafias... Uh, having a national frame of reference in terms of a whole set of operations, whether it be drug dealing or money laundering and investment and uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Federico Varese has been writing about how they, they weren't always successful. They were not always successful in moving in with the community. So if the community of Southerners went north, they didn't necessarily bring their local um, organised crime with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Federico's book is a really smart book, precisely, you know, he does something that's very simple and very brilliant, because he looks at their, the Mafia's failures, points where they, where they don't manage um, uh, to take hold. What I'd like to, I, I, my slight argument with that book is that I don't think he, He's, uh, it's a little bit um, deterministic in the sense that it's entirely context-driven. You know, there are certain places, whether it be export economies or whatever it might be, where the mafias won't grow, they won't take hold at all. Um, and that doesn't really help us explain why, for example, the Andrangheta turns out to be much, much better at setting up colonies in northern Italy. Mm than does 
say, Cosa Nostra, much more interested in setting up colonies than, than was Cosa Nostra. You know, already in the 1980s, when Cosa Nostra was certainly the biggest and most powerful of Italy's criminal organizations, there are mafia guys who turn state's evidence and say that in the north, we, our reference point was a Calabrian organization. Uh, and I think that's remarkable, and it's to some extent, you know, it's, it's, it's a problem that still needs studying and understanding. While the kind of contextual analysis that Federico has done is extremely important, and, and you know, there's few people better than him at it, uh, I think we also need to look at these things a little bit more also from the kind of choices and tactics adopted by the organizations and the properties of the organizations uh, themselves uh, to, to really get the full picture. I just want to put in a plug that um, I have actually interviewed Federico. His book's Mafia on the Moves, and it's if anybody looks at the website, they'll find the interview for that one there as well. But um, the groups actually have – well, it, it certainly appears from overseas that they strengthened and that there's been a bigger backlash since the early 90s. And we know the famous cases of the assassinations – of uh, magistrates in Sicily, uh, have they actually strengthened? Is, is this just a perception that we get because they receive more attention or are they just uh, fairly stable in strength over the last century? No, I think we can, I mean, the, the, the big narrative arc of my book is really about how we got to the high watermark of organized criminal power in the 1980s, really. Late, late 70s, 1980s to the early 1990s. Um, I think, you know, th I think then there was a serious risk that bits of territory, Italy would have simply lost control mm -hmm. of certain bits of territory that uh, would have become kind of mini narco states. Effectively, you know, we, we, I think we were at that level. Uh, we're not at that level today. The state has managed to react. And again, 1992 is really the watershed year. And, you know, again, this is part of the big narrative of my book. It's 1992 is the year of the assassinations of judges Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino. Uh, murdered, effectively, you know, there's a, still investigations going on into those murders, but the primary motive was that they had led the prosecution in the maxi trial that led to the Supreme Court verdict that confirmed life sentences for a great many mafia bosses, and just as importantly, established the legal precedent for the existence of the Sicilian Mafia and these bosses could be prosecuted as bosses of this specific organization. So it's a watershed year in the sense that it lives in public memory, that there were these tragic murders uh, which really did uh, draw a line in public awareness, I think, and, and uh, you know, you, you wouldn't hear, well, one or two, with one or two exceptions, you don't hear people denying the existence of the mafia after that. But um, it's also, just as importantly in many ways, a watershed year because Giovanni Falcone, in the last couple of years of his career, had been working in Rome, he'd been working in the Ministry of Justice, and he was setting up 
structures that Italy to this day uses to fight organized crime. He basically took his experience in Palermo, where he'd been defeated in the end, you know, the, the procedures, the methods that he'd tried to set up for fighting the mafia were defeated. But he was invited to Rome and he took advantage of this political opportunity to take that Palermo model and generalize it. Mm. So that henceforth, every big city in Italy would have a specialist anti-mafia team of investigators who were there to look at the whole picture of organized crime so that they could make connections between different individual crimes as part of the operations of a single organization, not necessarily always in a coordinated form, because, of course, this organization is highly political on its inside, often riven by factions and infighting, but nevertheless you're dealing with a, uh, a single political space, criminal space, and that's the way he wanted to see it. And he set up a national coordinating body and specialist teams so that henceforth... Organi not just the Sicilian Mafia, but all organized crime in Italy would be fought using his method. And that's what's happened. Uh, that's what hap has happened to this day. And that's the reason really why um, uh, organized crime is being fought better than it ever has been in Italy to this day. And this is particularly the case with Cosa Nostra, which is in the worst trouble of its entire history. So how uh, have the laws changed to support this structure? We were talking earlier about um, different laws, such as RICO-style laws. So you were saying to me in the pre-interview that the Italians had been trying to find a law that they could use for this particular circumstance that existed in, inside Italy. Yeah. I mean, again, part of the narrative of my book is the long and often bloody path to the making of a legislative framework adequate to the kind of permanent organized crime emergency that Italy faces. Um, <clears throat> we can see through a series of events, judges reaching for the idea, the key idea, that it was important to prosecute these organizations as organizations. Because if you're just picking off individual criminals and prosecuting for the crimes they've committed, firstly, it makes it very difficult to get at the bosses who are giving orders and are often three or four removes from the guy who presses the trigger or imports the drugs. Um, you're also, you know, you're, you're not getting the overall picture and you're not... Uh, combating effectively. And eventually, uh, amid extraordinary bloodshed in Sicily in 1982, Italy passed its version of the RICO laws that um, they did, had been passed in 1970 in, in, in the States. The politician who, uh, who proposed the law, a communist MP called Pio La Torre, was murdered for his trouble. Uh, gives you some idea of the importance of that law. Just as importantly, that law allowed the state to confiscate the wealth mm. of mafia bosses. That's a very, very powerful tool. And as what that law was part of a gradual escalation of the conflict 
between organized crime and the state. Effectively, most obviously the Sicilian Mafia, the, 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 the most powerful then of the uh, criminal organizations. Uh, in, in many ways, Mafia history, at least in terms of legislation and so on, and the state's response, is driven from Palermo, driven from the capital of Sicily. Uh, and as the bloodshed increases, as the Mafia responds to the state ratcheting up the response by murdering more policemen and more judges and, and more journalists, um, so the state responds fitfully, but nonetheless with increasing momentum, with legislation, things like legislation to protect um, people who turn state's evidence uh, that, that extremely important to, you know, to make their evidence permissible and to create the conditions under which their evidence can be permissible and obviously to protect them as well because Italy simply didn't have a witness protection program in, in uh, you know, in the mid-1980s and didn't really arrive properly until uh, much later. Similarly, another important law came only, was really only put into effect after the murders of Falcone and Borsellino, which was one to uh, create a special prison regime for bosses uh, whereby they couldn't communicate with the outside uh, because until then bosses had quite, you know, prison was a minor occupational hazard comparatively <laughs> speaking. They were able to get their messages out and their authority, uh, you know, they would have their representatives on the outside world who would act in their name and in their authority until they managed to get themselves sent to some nice clinic or something uh, by an obliging doctor. And so prison was very, very porous and, ratch you know, uh, uh, making prison mean something for crime bosses was uh, another important aspect of the increasing response. Uh, another part of the response I want to discuss is the recognition of the corruption in the political system that was supporting the mafia and in many ways disguising the existence of the mafia for a very long time. So there was a mutual gain happening between politicians and the mafioso of the various types. Yeah, no, that's very important. That's, that's inherent to what mafia crime is. Um, I, I always find it useful, the, most, the, the, the best analogy... Uh, and historically speaking, it's more than an analogy for the kind of criminal brotherhoods, Cosa Nostra and Andrangheta, is, is the Freemasons. They are kind of Freemasons of crime. And just like the Freemasons, they cut across between the social classes and the social spheres. You can have the thug killer, but you can also have the doctor, the politician, the lawyer. Uh, it's, it's something that's counterintuitive, particularly, you know, if we've been brought up in a broadly speaking uh, class-based analysis of how society works. Um, but the Sicilian Mafia, just like the Freemasons, which has always cut a clock across, you know, established networks across the class barriers, always cuts across back and class barriers. So it, it's, it's, it, we shouldn't be surprised, um, you know, in that this was true in the 19th century, it is true today, to find businessmen, to find uh, 
uh, doctors, politicians, lawyers, even aristocrats in in the mafia. Um, that again, that inevitably means that mafia crime is a controversial political issue. And history is full of episodes of politicians bleating that they are victims of political persecution when somebody tries to arrest them for uh, organised crime. Um, Again, one of the great breakthroughs of Falcone and Borsellino was their recognition of that, that the fact that they built that into their methods. Um, and um, the foot, but it, you know, it wasn't until, forgive me, I've forgotten the exact date, but I suspect it was the late 1980s that the first politician was ever convicted for working for the mafia. And that's still, it's still a very difficult crime to prove. It's still legislatively complicated and controversial in Italy. Uh, there are a series of failed. Uh, or semi-successful prosecutions um, that, that show that. The most conspicuous of all was that of Giulio Andreotti, the seven times Prime Minister of Italy, who, in a long trial uh, sequence in the 90s and 2000s, was eventually acquitted of mafia involvement, but only on the statute of limitations. Effectively, they decided that he'd been working for the mafia until 1980, say working for them. He had a partnership with them in Sicily, political partnership with them in Sicily until 1980, and then um, put off by their increasing violence, he distanced himself. Now, that controversial, that prosecution was was spun politically as a catastrophic defeat for the investigating magistrates and for the legal system because they hadn't proved. Uh, you know, a lot of people conveniently neglected that this was actually on the uh, statute of limitations and they'd made it, you know, now the Supreme Court has de- you know, decided that until 1980 he was in a partnership with the Sicilian Mafia. So that's beyond doubt, beyond legal doubt now. Um, so that's still, it's still a big area. It's still a controversial area. Um, uh, you know, Silvio Berlusconi for a long time uh, and his party defended politically a man called Nicola Cosentino, who was accused of working for the Camorra uh, and has only now, you know, very recently uh, been allowed to go on trial. They uh, parliament, par- parliamentarians have certain forms of immunity unless it's formally removed. So that's, you know, that is in many ways still an open chapter of the history of uh, organised crime. They link these links with politics. Just going back to the beginning of the book where you were talking about the um, the movies where the, the mafia, particularly the Sicilian mafia, were portrayed in a Robin Hood style. Was there ever a time, either in the period covered by the first book or in this present book, where the local people perceived these local gangsters as being um, saviors of the people or protectors of the people or in any way beneficial? Um, no. Because <laughs> that, that, that is say, still an issue that, even that, in that, light of the... That's not to say... Um, you know, remember the maf- particularly again the Sicilian mafia has its has its ideologists. 
lawyers primarily who who have a professional interest in spinning a certain version of what the mafia is. Um, you know, priests too have a particular take on the mafia, and so you know it's what led to the Pope's pronunciation because there were a couple of his excommunication of the. Uh, of the Andrangheta at the weekend because there were cases just recently, two cases where priests turned up in court and gave character references for Andrangheta bosses who were on trial. Um, that said, no, the, the, these organisations have never been more, more than, you know, murderous criminals. That said, um, they do manage... Again, an inherent part of what mafia crime is, is about building consensus, building political consensus. And they do that through uh, clientelistic means, through jobs, through favours, through the promise of favours. Um, that's why, we, and now that can never create a kind of uh, majority or even popular uh, consensus around the mafia around mafia crime, but it does create an important wedge of opinion and block of votes behind particular bosses. It does create, uh, you know, when, um, if the authorities confiscate a construction firm run by the mafia, uh, and closes it down, and it, well, or, or, or confiscates it, and it closes down because it's, you know, it's not really a functioning business, it's a front for organised crime, then the people who work for that company aren't going to be particularly happy uh, and will make their, 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 their voices heard and their feelings felt politically. So it's that, that kind of consensus um, that, you're, that you're battling against. You mustn't also forget fear. There's a remarkable thing going on at the moment in Bagheria, which is a, a, a sort of satellite town of Palermo. Very, very mafia run. It was the sort of headquarters of Bernardo Provenzano, the, the boss of all bosses until 2006. And it seems there that the mafia was even extorting, um, paying, making the dead pay protection money. You had to pay protection money to keep your relatives in the cemetery. And if you didn't keep up the payments, their bodies would be dug up and burnt. And the level of fear and hatred and anxiety that that creates in a community is hard to underestimate. You know, a, a generation ago, people would still talk about, would still whisper in these communities when they talked about organized crime. Um, and in Bagheria, where this, there's this horrible story of the, um, uh, of the cemetery, there's, there's recently been a kind of rebellion. Uh, a big wave of arrests has led to 30 uh, local businesses um, reporting, uh, and, and, uh, reporting people for protection racket operations. Uh, and 30 in a place like Bagheria is a, is a revolt. It's a rebellion. It, it, it feels like the beginning of a revolution. Um, uh, it's, it, that, you know, that's remarkable. That's actually quite interesting because I'm, I've always said to my students that extortion is the one crime you can't get anyone to come forward for. The fact that the extorters are there means it's very hard for someone to complain because they would say to the police, can you 
stop my legs being broken, you stop my dog being shot or my daughter being raped, the police say, no, well, I'm not coming forward. Similarly, we've had a massive crackdown on uh, motorcycle gangs in, in our state. And the very first thing that happened was a wave of people coming forward reporting extortion. So they suddenly felt safe enough to come forward with this one crime they were always afraid of reporting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, extortion is very often dismissed as somehow primitive, old-fashioned type of crime, but it's 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 hugely important to the longevity of these organisations and to their territorial control. They are territorial organisations, and it's the way they infiltrate both the legal economy and the illegal economy. It's the foot in the door of businesses and so on and so forth. Um, and it's also academically um, a very hot, you know, still a hot topic, if you like, in, in um, the study of organized crime, uh, generally because of Diego Gambetta's book, The Sicilian Mafia, where he argued um, famously, and Federico Varese, who we were, were, were talking about earlier, uh, adopts the, the, the Gambetta model more or less in, in, in his analysis. And what Gambetta argues brilliantly, and it, it's a book full of, of insights, is that, that we've overestimated extortion, he says, and that actually the protection element has a real function. It's not just a fiction, you know, I will make sure nobody kills your dog when it's actually the mafioso who, who is the one who's going to kill the dog. Um, it has a real function um, in uh, taking the place of services, guarantees, uh, supply of trust that the state is una unable to provide. And you can see what he means in the case of a cartel. You know, a, a good example of Gambetta's uh, analysis is the cartel. If we've got a little cartel of car showrooms in Palermo and we're, we're trying to make sure that nobody buys cars any cheaper, then we need somebody to police our cartel to make sure that nobody tries to undercut us, to make sure that nobody tries to set up a new uh, uh, car showroom selling prices, cars at a more competitive price. And who do you turn to to police the cartel? You can't go to the police, you go to the mafia and they make sure that things work smoothly. Now, you know, what Gambetta attracted a lot of criticism, I think, and I, I think, you know, some of it wildly um, uh, emotional, if you like, um, because the book was published at a very violent time in the history of the Sicilian Mafia. But nonetheless, some of that criticism justified, I think, for underestimating just how complicated and how insidious a strategy extortion is, underestimating the fear element. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways, empirically, we're, we're still waiting for the for the proof of, of which way, uh, you know, who is absolutely right, because the, the fear is still there and the protection regime has yet to, um, even though uh, the Sicilian Mafia is in trouble, its protection regime has really yet to crumble. Mm. Well, it's beginning to go at the edges. There's an interesting point that we can sort of wrap up the interview on. What do you think is going to happen? You were saying that they reached a peak of power in the 80s and they've been declining since then. Is this decline going to continue? Is there a time where, if not they're going to disappear, that they're at least going to be reduced 
to a point where they're no longer a serious organized crime, that they become a social problem as they were first described? Or is there a, a point where they're actually going to bounce back? Um, I don't think the end is even remotely in sight. We're talking about a, 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 a business that's going to take generations of, you know, police work going down through the generations, investigate, prosecute, imprison, investigate, prosecute, imprison, again and again, because these are organizations that have designed a method to perpetuate their power down through the generations. You know, they are, uh, they have their very carefully designed mechanisms for meshing organization and kinship, for, for managing the relationship between the two. That's one of their big uh, secrets. And so, you know, you're not just dealing with the mafiosi of today, you're dealing with their children and their grandchildren. You know, you, you, you've got to somehow interrupt that uh, mechanism. These, you know, there, there are astonishing cases of um, uh, bosses, you know, who coming out of prison at 80 years old and immediately going back there, uh, you know, people who reappear throughout my story, who even today uh, then are arrested um, in operations, um, you know, where their authority is recognized as a sort of coordinating power, okay, almost kind of constitutional authority for the organization. Um, the organizations are very, very resilient. Um, you know, they're designed, the whole point of having a mafia organization is so that if you get a wave of arrests, there's still somebody to take their place, still somebody to, contact, to collect the protection money, um, and to keep everything going. So, um, you know, in some ways we're still at the beginning and the fact that it was, you know, we're still waiting for the final Supreme Court verdict that recognizes that the Andrangheta is a single or the coordinating body, a verdict equivalent to the one that Falcone and Borsellino managed to get through in 1992, tells you, you know, that we really are still only at, at the beginning. Then there, of course, there is, um, you know, these organizations aren't um, parasites that live on an otherwise healthy body. If the mafias disappeared tomorrow, Italy would have very, very profound problems of governance um, and um, uh, corruption and so on and so forth, political culture more generally. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and you're not going to get rid of them until you change that on, make those changes on all fronts, I think, I'm afraid. Mm. Well, look, I've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you very, very much for returning for an interview. So we've been talking, yep, we've been talking to uh, John Dickey about Mafia Republic, the second volume of his history of the Cosa Nostra, Indrangheta and Camorra. Thank you very much for the interview. My pleasure.